We have been talking these last few weeks about the plan of God. And God has a plan that he is working. Sometimes it doesn't seem like that. Sometimes you say, where is God and everything? God's working a plan. From the foundation of the earth, from the time that he laid the foundation of the world, there has been a plan in place. And God has been working that plan. And specifically, the plan of redemption and restoration of mankind has been going on since that time too. And then God laid it out specifically how he was going to fulfill that plan to redeem mankind. He laid it out perfectly in a calendar of feasts that Israel was to observe every year. And so in the chapter that we have, Leviticus 23, this is the chapter where God lays out his feasts. And these feasts are, each one of them in totality together, are the plan of God in completion. And so tonight we literally come to the seventh feast. You are here tonight on the completion of the plan of God, amen? <laughs> so this is kind of a look into the past tonight. It's a look at the present and it's a look into the future tonight. So it started, look, if you look at all the seven feasts, it started with the spring feasts. And I'll have those up on the screen behind me. We had Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and weeks, or otherwise known as Pentecost, right? And so those were the four feasts of spring. And those really were feasts that dealt with and commemorated things that happened in Israel's history and giving God glory for the provision in their lives and his presence in their lives, but also prophetically looked forward to the first coming of Christ, for the coming of the Messiah. And so they were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. He became our Passover lamb. He was the unleavened one. He was the unleavened one that was spoken of by the unleavened bread that they, they ate at unleavened bread. He was the first fruits offering. He was the first fruits, Paul told us, of the resurrection. And then the Feast of Weeks was fulfilled 50 days after his resurrection, and that was the beginning and the commemoration of the second harvest. Jesus is the first harvest of the resurrection, and then there is going to be a second harvest, and that is the church of Jesus Christ, and you all are a part of that. If you're here tonight, you're a part of the second harvest. Amen? And so this was all fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the fall feasts, and tonight is the final one. So there were four spring feasts, three fall feasts, and tonight we're looking at the last of all seven feasts. We're looking at the last of the fall feasts, and they were these, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. Now, the fall feasts just like the spring feasts, are also commemorations of things that happened in Israel's history and were things that were God used for them to reflect, to commemorate. But they also, like the spring feasts, were prophetic in nature too. And these feasts prophetically looked forward 
to the second coming of Christ. The spring feasts look forward prophetically to the first coming, and so we're looking back at that now. And then where we are in history, we're looking forward prophetically to when the fall feasts will be, will be fulfilled, amen? And so that, that began at trumpets, day of atonement, that time of affliction, and then tabernacles. So tonight we're gonna look at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it really centers around this. This is the theme for tonight, and this is the takeaway. I'll give it to you now. Living with Jesus. Mary Jo mentioned it in the worship time that he laid down his life, he shed his blood to bring us back, to bring us back from that fallen state, to bring us back from darkness and death, to bring mankind back from that which they had fallen from, namely walking with him, living with him, and, and specifically the Garden of Eden, right? So tonight we're gonna look at the Feast of Tabernacles and it really deals with just dwelling with God. So let's take a look at this, the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23, let's pick it up, verse 33. It says this, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation and you shall do no customary work on it. For seven days, you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer uh, to, to, uh, an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, beside the, besides the Sabbath of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and beside your free will offerings, which you shall give to the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, then you have gathered in the fruit of the land, and you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. And on the feast, on the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations, and you shall celebrate it in the seventh month, and you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So we're looking at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Booths. You say booth? What? I mean, when I think of a booth, I mean, 
I don't even know what I think, like a booth at like a diner or something, you know, or maybe a telephone booth, right? Which no one knows what those are anymore, right? You've seen those memes on Facebook, like it's, a, it's like a telephone hanging on the wall. It's like, what's this, you know? Anyways, um, tabernacles or booths. The Feast of Tabernacles, well, this was, this was really the most important feast of the year because it really was the end of the year. It was the seventh year, the seventh feast that was the final feast of the year. The Feast of Tabernacles is the festival of the fall harvest. The, the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets would gather the people out of the harvest and then there would be Day of Atonement 10 days later and then on the 15th day would commemorate the Feast of Booze which would bring them into this really, this, this celebration really, this rejoicing of the harvest as it was fully brought in that the Lord had brought up. So it was really like the fall festival. I remember like, you know, there were those, there was those in various churches, like if you tried to do a fall festival, you know, they'd be all up in arms and bring you like, you know, tapes on Halloween and how it's like satanic and everything. And it was like, I always came back with, no, well, God was into a fall festival. In fact, he had a fall festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, amen? And, um, and so this was the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles had two important functions. Number one, it was that agricultural Thanksgiving. It was the Thanksgiving for the full harvest that was brought in. And it, it was also called, for that reason, the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Ingathering. I, I think that's kind of inter interesting because it's the completion of the gathering of the harvest. And you can kind of let, let your kind of wheels spin on that one for a little bit. Number two, the second thing about the Feast of Tabernacles, that this was a feast, uh, was a celebration of God's protection during Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. So while it was a celebration of the, the harvest that had fully come in, it was also a commemoration and looking back for Israel to a time when God totally took care of his people as they dwelt out in the desert and the wilderness for 40 years. And so this was what was happening. Uh, so the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the, the, a tabernacle, what is a tabernacle? A tabernacle is actually, we, we think of it today because it's like kind of a biblical word, really. So we think of it with a kind of a biblical kind of undertone, kind of a religious underpinning, really. But it's really a simple word that just means dwelling place. Dwelling place, it's just a dwelling, is what it is. Uh, and so you had the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is connecting to, that. you know, we're gonna get into a little bit later, where he had them make, like kind of makeshift booths or little, little you know, huts, really, and so that they would dwell in these huts for seven days, and it was kind of like, you know, this whole party, like family thing, and a fall festival, and you know, it's like camping trip for a week, right? You know, for, for the family, and it was like, hey, we're gonna remember, we're, we're gonna thank God for the, for the harvest and everything and how he's provided, but we're also gonna dwell in these little huts, these little booths, and we're gonna remember, we're gonna look back at what God did and how he was with his people, Israel, when he brought them out of Egypt, and they were in the desert. Mm -hmm. So that was the purpose of the booth, the, the, the tent, if you will, the, the, the tabernacle. The booth symbolizes 
in that sense, man's need to depend upon God for his provision, for his food, for his water and shelter. And this is what it said to Israelites who would celebrate this feast every year. Can you imagine you're sitting around with your family and you're like in a booth, like you, you've, you've gathered like, you know, trees and leaves and, you know, willow branches and palm fronds and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, you got, I don't know, you got like a tiki hut or something. I don't know. And you're just sitting there in your family. And I don't know what they did. I don't know if they had their dreidels or whatever back then. No, I think that's a modern thing, modern Jewish thing. But anyways, they did their thing. And can you imagine sitting there? And, and the idea was that you would sit with your family and remember and you would contemplate the things that God had done for his people. And these types of things are so important. We're gonna take a look at that as we go to the table of the Lord tonight. Because when, when, when Jesus gave us the meal, when he gave us communion, he said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. And so it's that same kind of idea. The commemoration of the feast was to remind Israel that God made them dwell in tents, that he brought them out of Egypt, and that he cared for them. God provided water, and you remember all the times, right? They needed water, they were thirsty, God provided the water. They needed food, and God provided the food. They'd walk outside of their tents every day, and what was on the ground? Manna, which is, means, what is it? <laughs> remember, uh, it was like, whatchamacallit. Remember the candy bar, whatchamacallit? Yeah, that's what it was. That's what, man, that's what manna was. It was like, what is this stuff? But God provided it every day for them. Amen? He also provided direction and kind of a symbol of his presence with them. There was a cloud. There was a pillar of cloud by day and, and there was a pillar of fire by night. And so God was there with them uh, as they dwelt of course, he had them build a tabernacle for him. They dwelt in their tents and he had them build a tabernacle for him. And that was his dwelling place in the center of the encampment. So the, the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated God's provision for the nation of Israel when they dwelt in tents. And they would do this every year. There were three, there were three feasts of the seven, that you would, at least as, a, as, a, as a, a man and anyone else that was able-bodied that was able to do it, would literally go to Jerusalem to celebrate, celebrate those feasts. And they were Passover weeks or Pentecost and Tabernacles, those three feasts. So what they, what they did was they would go to Jerusalem. Wherever they were in the land, they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate tabernacles. And so um, everyone couldn't, you know, they just didn't stack up on side of, by each other. So they would just kind of, you know, spread out. And so as you approached Jerusalem during uh, Feast of Tabernacles, you would begin to see, you know, the families with their, with their booths, with their tents set up. You know, it was kind of like a, I remember going to like, we had these Christian festivals mm -hmm. and they still have them, um, big ones in uh, Creation Fest, right? Or Creation. And uh, I remember growing up going to a, one in Virginia called, um, it just slipped my mind, Fishnet, Fishnet. And we would just uh, camp out in tents and uh, it was a crazy, crazy thing. Fun thing. Well, the reason why I'm saying that is because I remember one particular year, it rained the entire time. And the, um, the whole place was so filled with mud 
I have to tell you this. Uh, the place was so filled with mud that it was during that time, it was like I think right around 1990, and the, the say no to drugs uh, thing was in full force. And you remember the commercial that they had um, with the frying pan? And it was the egg, and it was like, you know, this is your, one last time, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. And they would throw the egg, it cracked the egg into the skillet, and it would just fry, right? And so it was just trying to get your attention. So Mary Jo and I, <laughs> I don't know where she went, but she, uh, we, used, we did this thing where we, we drew up <laughs> this thing about Fishnet 1990, and we, did, we drew a picture of a brain, and we put it in like a poncho, and it had mud dripping on it and rain, and it had like a frown on it. And, uh, and the caption read, I can't believe I'm telling you this. The caption read, one last time, this is your brain at Fishnet 90. <laughs> Miserable and full of mud. But anyways, they had a good time as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, dwelling in tents. And, uh, and so... The, day, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was a different feast than, the, than uh, the Day of Atonement. Remember last week, if you were here, the Day of Atonement was a solemn time. It was a time of humbling yourself. In fact, the instructions for the Day of Atonement were that you would afflict your soul, that, you, that it was an affliction of the soul, that you would humble yourself before God, that you would contemplate your sin. And it was on that day that the, the, the sin of the nation and your sin specifically would be atoned for as the high priest would carry out his duties in the Holy of Holies. Amen? This was completely different. This was a celebration. This was a time for joy. This was a time for celebration in that sense. Israel had passed through the season of repentance and redemption, and now it was a time for restoration. It was a time for joy. It was a time for just that laughter and excitement. And isn't that true uh, in our own lives? There's a time uh, that we go through, that time of repentance, that humbling, maybe even crying before the Lord when you literally contemplate your sin. You sit and actually contemplate your sin, or maybe even the sin of the whole world. I'm crazy because I sometimes think of that. I think of like, you know, 7 billion people today, right now, and we're all sinners and we're out, everyone's out there sinning it up and somehow Jesus died on the cross for all those sins, all the sins of all time. He took that. And when you come and you humble yourself before God and you humble yourself before Christ, the blood of Christ is applied to your life. Man, you, you know that freedom. You know that joy that comes from knowing Christ. In fact, they were instructed to rejoice during tabernacles. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, let's have a good time. It's fall festival. They were literally, they were instructed. In fact, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 16, beginning at verse 13. This is what the Lord said to, to Israel. He said, and you shall rejoice in your feast, and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place with which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. Amen? Amen. Yes. And we're coming, we're in that season now. Amen? I mean, Really, we're always in that season. We're always to be in that season as believers. Um, every day is Thanksgiving, but somehow we have this Thanksgiving in November and everybody gets thankful and, 
And, um, and so, but, but thanksgiving is so important because it reminds us of where our provision comes from. Amen? And so rejoice, give thanks. So that's all of what it commemorated. It, it, it was the commemoration, rejoicing over the, the, the ingathering of the harvest, looking back to the time that God cared for them and provided for them when God brought their ancestors out of Egypt and they dwelt in tents in the desert. But then also prophetically, the Feast of Tabernacles looked forward in time from the time that it was given in Leviticus 23 to the first coming of Messiah, the first coming of Jesus. It's, it really, well, let me tell you this, it speaks prophetically of the first coming and the second coming. We're gonna deal with the first coming first. Jesus was born in the fall. In fact, we learned from Dr. Michael Heiser that most likely, and I tend to agree, that Jesus was born on, believe it or not, September 11th, 3 BC, on the day of Feast of Trumpets. It also happened to be Noah's birthday as well. If you want to listen to that message on the podcast, Genesis 6 and the second Noah. Wow, what a powerful message. Um, but so Jesus was born at the fall. So you had trumpets, then you had Day of Atonement, then you had tabernacles. So what was it that Jesus was doing when he came to the earth? Well, he's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity and he's coming to the earth to dwell with men. Isn't this exactly what John says in the opening of his gospel? I'll throw the verse up on the screen. John 1:14 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt. The word there is the Greek word skenu, which is actually tabernacle. He tabernacled amongst us. And, and I think there's an actual English, kind of a hip English translation that says, and the word became flesh. Uh, Jesus took on flesh and pitched his tent with men. He pitched his tent with men. And when did he do that? He did that at the time of the fall. He did that in the fall. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the early readers of John would have understood the reference when they would have seen that, when they would have heard, oh, the word, the logos became flesh, took on flesh and, and tabernacled? Well, sure. And that's exactly what he would do, right? He would tabernacle with men. Now, Jesus, in his ministry, he tabernacled, he took on flesh at his birth, or at his conception, really, right? And then he was born. But then he, of course, in his ministry, there was a time that Jesus announced that he was the fulfillment of tabernacles. And he's just, in every which way, the fulfillment of tabernacles, right? Because he's literally God tabernacling with men. But how did he, how did he say it? He, he lived it, he was it, but how did he communicate it? Well, first I want to read a verse in, in Hosea. Hosea verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. I'll throw it on the screen for you. It says this, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Okay, specifically, a little background for tabernacles. During the Feast of Tabernacles, priests were organized into two groups. 
And every morning of the feast, the first group would go straight to the east uh, from the Temple Mount. They would go down the Kidron Valley, which is to the east, and they would collect willow, palm, myrtle branches, citrus branches for the people to place in the temple courtyard. The second group of priests would head south to the Pool of Siloam, and they took a, a gold pitcher along, and the priests dipped the pitcher into the water. Both groups of priests would meet at the temple, and the people placed the branches in the temple courtyard and before the altar, and the water was poured out of the pitcher as a reminder of God's provision of water for them during the time of the wilderness. So all the, so the priests, the, the one group of priests got the branches, which is kind of symbolizing what they would have made the booths with, what they would have made their tents with, right? Their, 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 their booths. The, the, the Hebrew word is actually sukkoth. So you, when you see that in the Old Testament, that's what that is, okay? And so the, the, both of these things are kind of symbolizing tabernacles. And so this is what would happen. Now, on the last day, which was the greatest day of the feast, the priests went to the pool of Siloam and they returned with an empty pitcher. This signified that God's word to the Israelites was true. They now lived in the promised land that was given to their fathers, that was promised to them, and there was no longer need for water to be so supplied to them supernaturally. So the priests on the last day would come back with an empty pitcher on the last day of tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles occurred at the beginning of the early rains. And so God had provided water and a harvest in the past, and then new rains were needed for them to be sustained. And so when they brought the empty pitcher back from the pool of Siloam, which means sent, the priest recited the following prayer from Isaiah chapter 42, and I'll have it up on the screen for you. It says this, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring, and they will spring up among the grass like will willows by the watercourses. So what is this talking about? It's talking about the rain of the Spirit of God coming upon the earth. It's, it's kind of a prophetic time, and this is going to occur when Messiah comes. So John records how Jesus communicated that he was the fulfillment of tabernacles. In John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, I'll have this on the screen for you. Look, look at this. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus literally stood up on the last day and he's literally saying, he is the water that was going to come. He's the one that's bringing the latter rain. He's bringing the fulfillment. He is the one. If anyone thirsts, come unto me, and out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. This was said to a people who were celebrating 
and looking back on a time when their ancestors lived in the desert and had to wait upon God for water to be supplied to them supernaturally. So this is what God's saying. Now, every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a celebration of illumination. On the Temple Mount, four large menorahs or candlesticks. Menorah is just the Hebrew word for candlestick, right? That would be illuminated. The result was a light that shined so brightly it could be seen over 100 miles away. At the end of the feast, the menorahs were blown out and they remained unlit until the Feast of Tabernacles came back around again the next year. Now here's what's interesting. John told, John continued the story. We have it in John 7, which I just read to you. He said, on the last day, he said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, right? The next day, Jesus gets up, and that's when he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So what was Jesus saying? saying, look, I'm fulfilling this. I've come to dwell with men. I've come to be with you. And I'm going to send my spirit like the latter rains, and that spirit is going to tabernacle in you. That's why Paul would later say, do you not know that you are the temple, the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit? That, that, That the spirit of God has come to dwell with you. And that's what this whole thing is about. It's living with Jesus. It's walking with Jesus. Jesus wants to dwell with men. And so can you imagine God before he created the universe, before he created the world? Have you ever ever imagined God before the universe? Anybody? Okay. What was he thinking? (laughs) He's sitting there. It's like him. You know, it's the Trinity, which I, you know, I don't know how that all went down, you know, and three and one, and they're having a conversation. What should we do? (laughs) Let's make a universe. Let's make a world. And let's put people in it that are going to be as our image upon the earth. And we're going to walk with them. We're going to dwell with them. We're going to be with them. And that's that's the desire of God, that he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with you. Amen. I, 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 thought, I thought about this and then I wasn't going to share it. And then right now I just feel like I want to share it. So I will. The, the cosmology of the Old Testament was set up so that, that literally the creation is seen as a tabernacle. That the earth below and the heavens are stretched out. You can read it all throughout the Old Testament. The heavens are stretched out like a tent. So literally the whole creation is God wanting wanting to tabernacle with men. Amen? And that's that's that literal imagery from from the Bible. Amen? So let's wrap this up. Actually, we're doing good. You guys were nervous when I, you know, Leviticus 23, and it was like 11 verses, and I was reading the whole thing, and you guys were nervous. But we're doing great. So that was the first coming, and that's what Jesus said then. But then also, it prophetically looks forward to the second coming. Amen? The Feast of Tabernacles also points forward to the second coming of Christ and his millennial reign upon the earth. 
That time period is spoken of to us in, well, in different places in the Bible, but probably most specifically that most people are familiar with is Revelation chapter 20, right? Revelation 20, the second coming, and Jesus coming to the earth and, the, and dwelling with men and, 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 and the millennial reign. Every Christmas, we read all of the famous Christmas passages, right? We read like, you know, your Matthew 1, your, your Matthew 2, and the, you know, the, the Magi, and then of course we read the Luke 2, and of course Luke 1, and the announcement to Mary. And what I want to call, call your attention to is in Luke 1, verse 31, in this announcement to Mary, part of the announcement, there was a very specific promise that was given to her. And I want to read that. And it says this, and behold, verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now that's a very specific thing, a very specific promise, amen? Now we know that Jesus in his first coming to the earth did not sit on his father's throne, on David's throne, amen? Because the Jews, Israel did not have a throne in Israel and Jerusalem at that time. In fact, the only throne was the throne of Rome, that was occupied by the governor from Rome, from the, from the kingdom, from the Roman kingdom. And who was that? Pontius Pilate. So you had Pontius Pilate kind of by way of Rome, kind of governing and kind of ruling over Jerusalem. And it was Pontius Pilate that sentenced Jesus to death, giving in to the crowds. So there wasn't David's throne to sit on at the first coming. But God promised that the son Jesus would come and sit on the throne of David. That Messiah would come and sit on the throne of David. So at his second coming, Jesus will sit on the throne of David. Amen? Jesus will put his feet down on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And he will begin to reign on David's throne according to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14 is a, is a portion of scripture that deals with the day of the Lord. Whenever you see the day of the Lord in scripture, it's talking about this day. I mean, it will be a moment in time, amen, but it will also be kind of a, a time period that, that the Lord will return and there, will, there was, you know, we don't have time to go through Revelation tonight, but there's going to be some serious, you know, battles. There's going to be some serious battles taking place. And it all centers in and around Israel, in and around Jerusalem. And that's why to this very day, to this very moment, there's such an issue with that little plot of land over there in the Middle East that's the size of New Jersey. But yet it's, a crucible. It's a crucible. So, Zechariah 14, 
Beginning at verse three, it says this. I'll throw it on the screen for you. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it shall move toward the south. Well, I don't know exactly how this all goes down. I've read, and I actually included this in the book, Who is Jesus?, which I got this from Chuck Missler, by the way. I gave him credit in the footnotes. You can read the endnotes. Give credit where credit's due. I got like 116 endnotes in that book, okay? I gave credit all over the place to everybody, right? There is a fault line. It goes underneath the Mount of Olives and in fact, when Intercontinental Hotels went in and wanted to put a hotel on, they did the geological review of the area where they were going to put the hotel, and they discovered this fault line that is literally like it's just a hair, you know, this, this thing that's running right through the, the Mount of Olives. Now, I don't know, you know, you, you talk about in California, you have the San Andreas Fault, and, and whether that's going to be, you know, they're waiting for the big one out there, right? You know, it goes up through right, by San Francisco, right? Remember the big one they had during the World Series? We don't know what's going to happen, but we do know what, how it's going to happen. We do know what's going to happen. We know that Jesus' feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives, and then he's going to begin to rule and reign. Well, before, before that, he's got to fight some battles. There's going to be this confederation of nations that will have gathered together against Israel and against specifically the Lord. This is how it's worded in the Bible, that they've gathered together, they rage and plan and conspire to do battle against the Lord. And who, who does that, right? Now, if you were sitting there and you were thinking like, you know, you're, you're the king of, you know, this nation and this nation, and you're in a room and you're going to have a powwow and like, what are we going to do? We're going to take out Israel and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we're going to, you know, we're going to get this done. And just in just that, you know, just this mindset that they're going to, that's going to be present, they're going to move forward on that. And, and, and really, you can read about this in Psalm chapter 2, where the psalmist prophetically says, why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, right? And I love it because then the next verse says, he who sits in heaven laughs. He who sits, God, God, God laughs. I laugh. I laugh all the time. I crack myself up every day. Amen. Every day. And, I, and, and, and somewhere down in my history, I came across that, that verse of scripture that said, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. And, and, and they talk about people who are jolly people, like have long lives because like they're just, you know, giving themselves medicine every day. And I just, I just try to laugh, belly laugh at least once a day about something, even if it's dumb. You know, I don't care. I don't care. Even back in college, I would lay in my bed and laugh at the Far Side comics and stuff. And people would just crack up over me, cracking up over these jokes, you know? So they're going to gather together, and God, the Lord's going to come down, 
and he's going to do battle, and he's going to be victorious. Amen? We don't have time to get into all that, but it's going to be some bloodshed. It's going to be, that there's the measurements of the blood shed in the book of Revelation. Remember, you were around back when I used to go through Revelation. There was, there's literally measurements of the bloodshed in the book of Revelation and, and, and other parts of Scripture. And that, that valley of Megiddo, you know, that's in that central valley in, uh, in Israel. The, the valley of Armageddon, Right? And God's going to come in. Jesus is going to come in and he's going to sit on the throne of David. And he's going to rule and reign. And that Psalm, Psalm 2 says he's going to rule and reign with the rod of iron. He's going to rule the rod. Now the first time he came, he came as the lamb of God. Right? John the Baptist said, look, there he is. There's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The second time he's coming, he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming to rule and reign with the rod of iron. He's going to displace the kings who were against him and against what he's got going on. And he's going to displace those, those people. And then what's going to happen? The people of God are going to dwell with Jesus. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. Amen? We're going to rule and reign with Christ. And, 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 and that's why in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were called a royal priesthood, a nation that was a royal priesthood. And that's why Peter picks up on that theme and says to Christians, you are a royal priesthood. What's that? You're a king and a priest. If you've been bought by the blood of Christ and you've been brought into the family of God, you've been made a priest unto God. You've been made a, a person who makes sacrifices to God and you've been made a king that you are to rule and reign. And that all begins now, that we're priests unto God now and we're kings having dominion over that which God has given us stewardship over in our lives. And then when we get to heaven, and I talked about it last week, we're not gonna be sitting around, oh, it was Wednesday night. We're not going to be sitting around on harps with clouds and little wings and stuff. We're going to be doing major stuff. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. So we are a kingdom of priests under Jesus, who's the king of kings. We're kings under the king of kings. And I used to think of like when it was said king of kings. Okay, so he's king over all the other kings that are out there. And then one day it dawned, me, dawned on me, no, the people of God are kings. Good. We're kings in the kingdom, and he's just the king of kings. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is king. Amen? Amen? I had to weave, Kanye's right. Amen? Hashtag <laughs> Kanye is right. He is the king. In fact, he's the king of kings. Hashtag Kanye is right. Amen? All right, let's wrap it up with this. Let's wrap it up with this. So Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign with the priests and kings of his kingdom. We're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to dwell with him. And this is what the next verse in the Annunciation that Gabriel spoke to Mary. I read 31 and 32 in Luke 1. Luke 3. 133, I'll throw it up on the screen. It says this, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. So what do we have to look forward to tonight? We have to look forward to winning. (laughs) Winning. There's a, there's a band that I love, it said, and they have a song that says, and the good book, what does it say? It says we'll win, amen? And we're going to win, and we're going to be with Jesus. And Jesus is going to accomplish what he set out to do, which is to have a people that he can dwell with in the earth. Amen? 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 amen. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing.